I'm Bob Sharp, and you're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, making sense of political outrage since 2019. You know you need it. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. I'm a professor of American politics and political philosophy at Portland State University here in lovely Portland, Oregon. My guest for this episode is Karen Pan a young political activist and former student of mine who's currently taking a break from politics to see if she can recover from her outrages and disappointments. You'll hear about some of these in our interview. In her relatively short political career so far, Karen has worked on the Washington County District Attorney race for the Democrat Brian Decker and on Joanne Hardesty's 2020 re-election campaign for Portland City Council, both, I'm sorry to say, for her losing efforts. She most recently served as a legislative intern in the Oregon House for Representative Con Pham of District 46, which is located in outer southeast Portland. In her new job, she's moved into the arts community to work as the marketing and production manager for Livewire, a Portland-based live performance and podcast that brings underrepresented voices to the stage for honest conversations. You can find a link to Livewire in the show notes. I have to note that I experienced some technical difficulties with the recording that I only noticed after we were done with the interview. Everything sounded great on our headphones, but the digital files captured on my computer were glitchy in a way I still haven't figured out. I'm sure Karen would have come back to re-record, but I liked the freshness of her answers, the rawness of her feelings at the moment, so I didn't want to do a take two. To deal with the mess, I've taken out my part of the conversation and done my best to clean up Karen's responses so they're easier to hear. I jump in from time to time to add some of my thoughts and tell you what I asked Karen. Our crack technical team here at the Pothole Problem Podcast, that is me, is working hard to make sure this never happens again. I'm bummed that you can't hear the entire conversation. Karen and I went a lot of great places, and it was a lot of fun to talk to her, and I feel like both of us came out of it feeling a lot better about the things that scare and annoy us about American politics. Sometimes these things just happen, though, and you have to look forward and not look back and be annoyed and mad at yourself for the mistakes that you've made. I've already forgiven myself for whatever way it is that I screwed up, and I hope that everyone else can follow that advice and forgive themselves when they mess up as well. That's the little moral I'm trying to insert here in the intro. So, okay, enough for me. Let's move on to the interview. I began the interview by asking Karen the question I ask all my guests. What's something that used to outrage you that no longer does? And what brought about the change? Here's what Karen had to say. Something that used to outrage me that no longer longer does, I think, is the amount of participation and civic engagement from 
students and community members. Interesting moment this summer, I was at, at a uh, secured party for uh, a representative and the next door neighbor popped over and they were, like, they were like, hey, what are you doing? Like, what's all this, this commotion? And the house party director just said, oh, you know, no, we're doing a political house party and would you be interested in come, coming over? And the older gentleman had said, oh, no, I think politics is such a dirty game and I would never do that. And in that mo- moment, I'd taken him back and I was, I was like, well, like, Hey, like, like, right, like, whatever, like, you, you do you. And now I'm in a bat, where I'm, I'm like, you know, I think you might have had a point. Like, I've been really involved in the local political scene for the past year. And I think, coming out the other side, side of it, I understand why people tend to distance themselves from more of the local politics, except than it's like a pre- the presidential election, the rural politics. I think that drop off is some, something I used to be really curious about. about why people were so interested in a presidential election, but not, you know, you know, their local state representative would be um, more like a school board member. Now, I think it's just there are so much local political anger and just commotion that uh, I can understand people just say, like, you know what? It's not for me. Politics is such a dirty game. This is a very common refrain among non-politicos. And I love that Karen, who's been deep on the inside of politics and knows the game pretty well, can actually appreciate the casual disgust of the neighbor in her story, and accept when people say, yeah, politics is not really for me. In my observation, it's very difficult for people who've been inside the game and who probably know better than anyone why it's a dirty game or why it's frustrating or why it's difficult to accept an outsider's evaluation of it that way. And it's, it's great to me that Karen has that sort of perspective at a pretty young age after having been inside politics for only just a few years. Another thing we talked about was the focus on presidential and national politics to the exclusion of local and state issues that actually matter more in people's daily lives. Like a lot of politically aware people, Karen wishes people would pay closer attention to local issues and the actions of local and state officials. But she also understands why focusing on local issues is a source of anger and outrage as well. It's the pothole problem, essentially, right? People see problems in their communities going unaddressed, and they think their elected officials aren't doing anything constructive. And if they do see something, it's often a scandal or a negative story that only reinforces negative impressions. That's the pothole problem. People see what the government does poorly right up in front of their faces, and they get angry at it. And then they turn to national politics, and they look at what's going on with the president and with Congress, and they see a bunch of clowns and people just acting out their performances, and they get frustrated with that. So the source of anger and outrage seems to be different at the two levels, but they both really reinforce that feeling of politics is dirty, it's ugly, it's pointless, it's frustrating, why should I bother? So in the end, Karen understands now why people aren't engaged in politics. She gets, probably better than most people, why there's disgust and disappointment. The next thing I asked Karen was about her current outrages. Here's what she said. My current outrages, oh boy. I will try to shorten my list and pick one. The notion of celebrity, I can pull politics and just our local political scene. And I will emphasize on the idea that I think elected and elected officials should be a part of the community rather than feeling like they're, you know, somewhat above it or that their time is time worth their community members' time. And maybe it's just fresh from a jaded experience working in Oregon politics in particular. But I love the notion that if you are, you know, an elected electoral, it's your job to represent the people, listen to the people. And with my experience in the legislature particularly and I'm speaking, obviously, from my own 
my own perspective and my own experience. But it's a very, very sobering thing to walk into that building thinking, hey, I'm here to, to help my community and help whoever I can. And that's why, why politics, right, is to make the world a better, better place. And then you almost get, get an institutional kind of, of barrier and right away where it's like, okay, now you're here, but in order for, you know, Oregon Democrats help the most people build out. And then we look at it from how do we, we look at policy-wise, how do we policy-wise help help the most people that we can? And let's take less time to do, you know, constituent work. And it's, and it's almost like in the legislature, if you are a legislative and, you know, constituent response, constituent services is your official almost like you're kind of looked down upon, like it's not important as chief of staffs uh, influencing policy and being these big important meetings with with the senators and representatives. And I think that can be really disheartening for people who are entering the legislature and are just, you know, a legislative assistant to clarify, you know, the different levels and different pay levels. But, but I think, you know, why is it that someone who is a legislative assistant coming in with a constituent request about someone that is, is concerned about you know, a let's say dangerous vehicle parking on uh, on their driveway it's almost most like immediate thing and ask anyone to even legislature they'll be like we'll point that to, to city officials or that's this that's the city's problem oh what do you want you know my boss to do about that's, that's joint services like that's not and it's like wait shouldn't we be working together like shouldn't there be some kind of conversation Karen talks about legislators downplaying constituent services in favor of working on policy and getting policy wins for their party, which of course is one of the big things legislators are elected to do, make policy. What I take from Karen's frustration here, and I should note that Karen has worked for legislators, is not that a policy orientation is wrong-headed itself, but when it results in sacrificing resources, the legislators' time and staffing hours that could be used to connect with constituents, it's not only shirking another important job the legislator has, listening to constituents, it also deepens the sense that constituents have that they aren't, in fact, important, that the political system isn't working for them, even if maybe they are getting some policy wins along the way. In other words, it reinforces a sense of alienation that regular people already feel from the political system when they try to reach out to their legislators and they get basically stonewalled. Public service is a tough thing, no doubt about it. But what I hear Karen lamenting is that maybe elected officials are too focused on policy and not focused enough on people. Speaking of public service, it's time to shout out to the Pothole Problem Podcast new supporter, the Center for Public Service, run by some of my colleagues in the Hatfield School of Government here at the Portland State University. The Pothole Problem Podcast is supported in part by the Center for Public Service, a valued community member in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. The Center for Public Service provides individuals, public sector organizations, and nonprofits with access to the intellectual resources and practical experiences of the Hatfield School to help improve governance, civic capacity, and public management locally, regionally, nationally, and around the globe. The Center supports public service organizations with consulting services and applied research in a variety of areas, from human resources and sustainable development to disaster preparedness and cultural communication. The center has multiple subunits, including the Institute for Tribal Government, the Nonprofit Institute, and the Initiative for Community and Disaster Resilience. The center also develops the knowledge and skills of present and future public service leaders through student engagement, professional development, and public service fellowships. The center offers non-credit courses and professional certificates and hosts seminars, panels, webinars, and conferences. To find out more about the Center for Public Service, go to pdx.edu and search for Center for Public Service, or find the direct link on the affiliates page of our website and in the show notes for this episode. 
Usually guests on this show only talk about one of the things that used to outrage them and it no longer does. But our conversation circled back to something else that Karen is no longer outraged by, and I think it's really interesting. Here's what she had to say. One of the things that used to outrage me that no longer does working working on campaigns is people getting to not vote based off of information on the candidate. And I used to think that this was just othered and outrageous and it infuriated me as someone who, you know, spent hours and hours door knocking and telling people why they should vote for the candidate and why they're amazing and, you know, they'll solve all your problems and then take it. And I think learning more about how local politics works and shapes local communities' lives and just the amount of information that comes out online about local candidates and either be good or bad or if it's vitriol, something really positive, I think it can almost create this drop-off for everyone and incentivize voters for like, if they're voting for a candidate, they're giving them their 100% sealable. And, you know, if they read anything bad on online, then that deal of approval is almost dropped to something that is completely minimal and even uh, make them disenfranchise vote. vote. And that is something that used to, to outrage me. And I used to just, you know, it's all the party and it's about the principle and we got to vote for the right, like worst of the worst of the two, right? And I think now, as I understand more about what my vote specifically counts for and how impactful a vote is, I, I am less inclined to give my, my vote to someone that is just a part of party or a party best pick. And, and I would feel bad about giving it to someone and then things coming out, out later about them that don't align, align my worldview. I find this answer particularly interesting, that Karen used to hate it when people would get turned off from voting for a candidate because of what they learned about that candidate in the media, maybe some negative coverage that might bother them or turn them off. When, as she said, voters couldn't give their seal of approval to that person if they weren't fully in favor of everything they did and said. And that her old response to that was that you have to pick the lesser of evils available, you have to support the side or the party that you're aligned with, and not expect politicians to be everything you want them to be before you'll give them your vote. She implicitly had what I often call an ideal voter model, a strong view about how voters should behave that included people researching what the different candidates stand for, listening to the people that come knock on their doors, reading voter pamphlets, and then making the best choice of those available based on what is closer to your views and interests. Many of us have an ideal voter model that we apply to people, generally when they fall short of it. I've heard many students and friends over the years use the term idiots and similar to refer to voters who support whatever party or candidate they don't like. This is common both inside and outside the classroom. Maybe many of you listening right now have called people idiots for supporting someone you thought was bad for those voters' interests, or bad for the country, or incompetent, even dangerous. Judging people this way is quite common. What I heard Karen saying is that her ideal voter model has been eroded, and she no longer blames people for being reactive against candidates who turn them off. I even hear her saying she now follows a different voter model herself. This unwillingness to cast a vote for someone unless we can give them our wholehearted stamp of approval rather than our nose-held lesser of two evil support. Presumably, following that voter model means leaving the ballot blank a lot of the time. That is, not voting. Most people lament low voter turnout, and what I hear Karen saying here is that she gets it why people choose not to vote, and presumably she sometimes leaves those ballots blank. I find it interesting that Karen has moved to a more unforgiving position about politicians, even as she's moved to a more forgiving position about other voters. 
This ties in with her earlier remarks about the lack of focus on constituent services turning people off politics. It seems to me that in general, Karen, after working pretty hard over the past few years for candidates and office holders, understands political discontent and apathy way better than she used to, and that we can really learn from her why it is that people are turned off of politics, why they decide not to vote, why they say things like, politics is such a dirty game. It's to be paid attention to, not brushed off. We shouldn't give these people civics lectures on the fact that it's your voice, your vote. If you don't get involved, you have to put up with the decisions that the people make who get involved. We could give that civics lecture, and we want to, many of us do, but it's not necessarily helpful. I think what I take away from my talk with Karen, and I'm really sorry that it had technical difficulties that got in the way of you hearing the full conversation, but what I take away from it is that we really need to pay attention to why it is that people are so turned off and try to turn things around in a direction that, that doesn't blame the people for being turned off and disgusted by politics. Once again, I'm really sorry that Karen's answers were difficult to hear after I applied various filters and editing tools. I'm absolutely going to have her back on the show in a couple of months. I'm really curious to see what she says after a spell working in the arts community about how she feels about politics now. I know Karen is a passionate, committed young person who will probably always be drawn to politics, so check back with future episodes for a Karen Pan follow-up. One last thing in this episode. At one point in our conversation, Karen mentioned a segment from one of my other podcasts, Applied Political Philosophy, that she thought was thought-provoking, and I promised her I would include it here as a supplement to what she said. It was about John Stuart Mill, a British philosopher of the 19th century, and his views on the fact that we ought to have public balloting, not private ballots. This came up in our conversation about how it is that maybe people would feel better about the political system, and Karen said that she thought it was kind of an interesting idea to make people actually have to proclaim their votes out loud the way Mill recommends. Okay, here is a four and a half minute piece on John Stuart Mill's views about voting. English philosopher John Stuart Mill was one of the most influential thinkers of the 19th century. His treatise on democratic theory, Considerations on Representative Government, first published in 1861, just as the American Civil War was beginning, addressed a wide range of issues related to establishing a modern democratic system. Many of Mill's ideas went against the prevailing ideas of his day and remain unrealized even now. For example, his opposition to party primaries. But he put a lot of thought into his proposals, and his arguments bear close attention as a critical standard for judging present-day democratic norms. His vote is not a thing in which he has an option. It has no more to do with his personal wishes than the verdict of a juryman. It is strictly a matter of duty. He is bound to give it according to his best and most conscientious opinion of the public good. Whoever has any other idea of it is unfit to have the suffrage. Those are the words of John Stuart Mill, writing about the duty of voters in a representative democracy. Mill's assertion that the franchise was a public trust, not an individual right, went against the dominant view in the United States, at the time, and even more so today. In the American political culture, the vote has always been considered an individual right that citizens possess to express and advocate for their interests and values. Even more controversially, Mill advocated for the ballot to be exercised publicly, not cast in secret, as the most likely mechanism for ensuring that citizens would exercise their duty as voters in the public interest. Here again are Mill's words. The voter is under an absolute moral obligation to consider the interest of the public, not his private advantage, and give his vote to the best of his judgment exactly as he would be bound to do if he were the sole voter and the election depended upon him alone. 
This being admitted, the duty of voting, like any other public duty, should be performed under the eye and criticism of the public, every one of whom has not only an interest in its performance, but a good title to consider himself wronged if it is performed otherwise than honestly and carefully. The idea behind this is that declaring to their fellow citizens how they are voting would induce people to act in the public interest rather than in furtherance of their private interests. Mill didn't consider the potential for peer pressure or groupthink, or perhaps he considered it but felt that the benefits of the public ballot would outweigh its risks. Nor did he consider that in a powerfully individualist political culture such as the American one, even a public declaration of one's vote wouldn't induce people to consider the common good. Despite Mill's advocacy, the secret ballot is the norm for elections in democratic countries. But there are a few notable exceptions worth considering. Legislative bodies frequently employ the roll call vote, a public declaration of a representative's choice, and the effect is exactly as Mill described. Representatives must face their fellow members and fellow citizens and declare their vote for all to hear. In the case of elected representatives, the idea that their vote is supposed to be in pursuit of the public interest is less controversial, though there is an opposing theory, the delegate conception of representation, which posits that elected officials are merely a pass-through for the interests and values of their constituents. Even in this case, though, the public ballot has a purpose, albeit a different one, to reassure constituents that their representatives are in fact voting in the interests of those they represent. The roll call vote, however, is cumbersome and time-consuming and is used in legislative bodies in the United States only rarely, when one or the other parties wants every representative to have to go on public record for a potentially controversial vote. Frequent use of a motion for the yeas and nays to be called would undoubtedly please Mill, who would probably say that it should always be used, even and especially when the representatives themselves don't want to. Another form of public voting also infrequently used is the primary caucus, a form of public voting used by a small number of states to select their party's presidential nominees. In a caucus, voters actually gather in a public place such as a school gymnasium and express their preference by physically gathering under the banner of a particular candidate. Typically, there are multiple rounds of physical balloting, with representatives of the various candidates moving among the groups, attempting to convince voters to switch. While this process does tend to favor candidates whose supporters are highly motivated, as well as available to participate in this often hours-long process, a set of factors that is not particularly inclusive, it is not only fully public the way Mill envisioned, it's interactive and deliberative, democratic values that Mill would have supported. If we believe with Mill that voting should express our, quote, most conscientious opinion of the public good, unquote, we should look for more opportunities to employ public voting instead of the secret ballot, perhaps being mindful of processes that are exclusionary, like the primary caucus. All right, well, that's almost it for episode 39 of the Pothole Problem podcast. In honor of the technical difficulties with this episode's interview, I'm going to end here with a comedy performance about misunderstanding what people are saying. The following clip is Anthony Lopez, recorded live October 2013 in the White Tiger Lounge, Portland, Oregon. As always, thank you for listening. The thing that helped me realize this was a few weeks ago I was talking to a friend and I said this expression I use a lot. I've used a lot in my 25 years on this planet. My friend stopped and he looked very perplexed and he said, Anthony, you know the actual expression is don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? <laughs> I was like, no, that makes, that makes slightly more sense than what I just said. Because <laughs> what I had just said to my friend and what I swear to God I have said so many times in my life was this little gem of an expression, which is, you know, you should never, you know, like, Lick the gift horse in the mouth. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I have used that expression so much. Because for me, that expression's always made perfect sense. You know? <laughs> Don't lick a gift horse in the mouth. It's literally the perfect expression.
expression for when you want to say, hey, don't do weird shit, weirdo, what the fuck's wrong with you? you know? Like, let me give you the context for this situation. A friend of mine told me, hey man, I'm thinking about jumping my bike over this flaming trash can, what do you think? And I was like, you know, don't look a gift horse in the back, you know what I'm saying? Like, this expression I was like, I always thought I knew where it came from. Which was like, you know that time in human history when people discovered if you lick certain frogs, you would hallucinate for hours? That there was just this big gold rush to lick every animal you find. And they made an expression about it, because you lick a frog, what's the worst thing that's possibly going to happen, right? If you lick a horse in the mouth, you're gonna get kicked in the chest and die. I swear to God, that's what I always thought happened to Christopher Reeves. That's what I thought was his Superman's self-second weakness. He's licking horses in the mouth.